Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, October 4th, 2020. Right. Apparently this would be my grandparents' 100th wedding anniversary. Wow. Wow. Okay, Sadie and Fred. That would be impressive. Yes, and... Wait, I don't even... And, and also, October 1st would have been my father's 98th birthday. Right, time out. Your grandmother was named Sadie? Her name was Sarah. Yeah. But my father called her Sadie. See, I didn't know this. Did you know this? We have Zeke with us. Zeke, did you know that? Hello. You know, I may have known this at some point. I don't usually think about this, so it's kind of surprising <laughs> me as well. <laughs> okay, well, that's impressive. So anyway, 100th, yeah, so a happy 100th anniversary, uh, such yeah. as it is. To uh, yeah. Sadie and Fred Granger. Okay, we have Zeke with us. Zeke is a, a little worse for wear. Uh, he has welcomed uh, a oh, new, I'm fine. A newborn into the world who doesn't have the right sleeping schedule yet. Well, just think, 98 years ago, Sadie and Fred were in the same boat. They were in the same boat. They were in the same. That's boat. true. They were in the same storm, but not the same boat. I think that's the phrase people are using these days. The same storm, but not the same boat. Okay. So uh, uh, that's okay. interesting, Zeke. Uh, and uh, so congratulations to you, Zeke. And one thing I've noticed about uh, our discussions about this blessed event is that you've been uh, very generous in terms of uh, giving Noel a lot of credit for the whole situation. Uh, not everyone does that. Kudos. Giving, giving Noel a lot of credit for what? For, you know, for the blessed event, for the newborn. Oh, for getting the baby out? Yeah, for being a key player. Yeah, I, I think she was a key player. Yeah, All right. I think you know, she was I the most think, valuable player. Yes, that's absolutely true, and yet I don't think what it's so new. Perhaps in the Abuha family, women don't get enough credit. Oh, I'm but just, I think oh, in the I'm world at large, I'm just kidding. The world at large, you know, people have been noticing. Women for a while. See, and their I, contributions. Oh, all right, all right. I'm Women, really... they're not just secretaries anymore. <laughs> okay, People you. are starting to take notice. <laughs> Great. I'm outnumbered. Fine. Thank you. Uh, all right. So uh, we're ready to go. We've got a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. Try to stay up with us, Zeke. Uh, and if the first article that we wanted you, Zeke, to pretty lend some technical expertise, if, if you have any in this area, is uh, the idea about all the, what I'll call stadium sound, the sound effects that are going on in uh, baseball in stadiums, football empty, stadiums. The empty stadiums. Empty stadiums. And, and I should say, I, I'm using the word stadiums, but also but you really basketball mean to say courts stadia. and hockey rinks. Stadia would be the plural. Stadia. stadia. But I still want hockey rinks and, and basketball courts too. So in other words, if you tune in to one of these sporting events, which I know you don't seek, uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, if you, just, if you didn't look at the screen for a second... All the sounds sound like the sounds you normally hear in a game filled with 50,000 fans in the case of football or filled with 19,000 fans in the case of basketball. And it adds to the experience not only for you, but for the players, because the sounds are actually being piped in to the actual venue because the players feel it's necessary for them to perform at a high level. Are you, are you aware of this, Zeke, or is this news to you? Yeah, I'd heard about this going on. Uh, I've heard different things. I think in the articles that we read, uh, they talked about a couple different setups of the NBA piping in the sound in the actual arena. But over in Europe, I think they had the example of a couple of soccer leagues where they were not actually piping in the sound. They were adding it as part of the broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I gotta say, to me, it seems weird. I mean, I understand. I haven't been watching a lot of this stuff anyway, so I'm not saying this is someone who's deeply invested and has a lot of personal experience with it, but still, uh, it seems weird to me that people feel the need to hear a crowd, even if the crowd isn't there. Because... Oh, you're, you're totally, you're totally off base. <laughs> no, but he, no, here's, here's the thing. Yeah, I understand no, that it could be exciting, but I, I, to me, yeah, it's, 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 it's disturbing the... implications about what you're actually doing uh, at that game. Like, are these, uh, are people not actually interested in the sport that's happening? Do they need it to be like a party where some some game is is occurring well, no, a little bit. No, no, bit it's not even that. It's like, a, you know, for one thing, I mean, I saw a um, TV report about this and the NBA players were rather negative about playing in an empty arena, okay? It just uh they very much against it. They, they need it. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's just playing in a vacuum. There's no momentum there's no excitement there's no i also prefer having thousands of people cheer me on whenever i do anything right (laughs) all right but like you don't if i if i go to work in an office they don't say like all right we got to pipe in those sounds but here's the difference some people are sick today we only got a dozen people in the office we really got to pump up the sound system (laughs) and get everyone here really roaring but zeke the players for them it's abnormal not to have these sounds i know you've lived a life with very little cheering while you do your work the players have grown up uh, with that, this cheering being part of the background noise. This is the way they perform. When Tiger Woods played his first golf tournament in, in the pandemic, he said it was totally weird. There have been fans at my golf tournaments since I was in high school. This is Tiger Woods talking, okay? So they grow up with this, and it's very hard to not to notice the silence, the absence of sound. They need this. It's normalcy. And as a fan, frankly, it contributes to the experience again because it's normalcy. But and and uh, so you, I'm, I'm so thrilled that Tamsin's backing me up on this. Good work, Tamsin, <laughs> because usually, you know, she, as she is will welcome, uh, will certainly concede. She usually is dozing off at the most critical moments of all these basketball games. Well, moment. it's white noise to me. Yeah. So it just puts it me puts to sleep. her right to sleep. Yeah. So it's but good any, for but that. But anyway, but here's the thing that I found interesting: the whole process of creating. Uh, this scenario, you know, not just uh, strategizing where to put speakers in the arena, you know, for the players, you know, heading, you know, onto the court, but also just developing the system, just developing, just collecting the sounds. Very complicated. They they seem to collect the sounds from all over, from like uh, video games and, you know, other sort of sound, you know, special effects libraries. Uh, so to speak, and then the guys who are doing it—it's uh, you know—it's kind of interesting that they have to. Uh, they say it's almost like playing a video game, and uh, you're um, you know anticipating what's going to happen. You know, being able to uh, anticipate right. the reactions. Uh, it's not just a, a constant crowd cheering. It's a crowd muted in anticipation, a crowd sighing, a crowd booing. Uh, you know, so they seem to have these of teams of, uh, I don't know, uh, what would you call them? Uh, directors, yeah. sound, directors sound directors or whatever, um, creating all of this. And they're combining the individual sounds. They've gotten to the point that they take they have individual fan-like sounds and they play them at the same time and they get the combined noise. I, I think you're missing the boat on this. Season. Plus... They're randomizing it. You know this. You got to tune so they, in they don't again. Act, they don't play right. the exact same crowd. Well, that's reaction. right. It's, it's not a hackneyed. You hear more it than once. You know. Okay? Let me make a comparison. Yeah. You hear the kind of souped-up sound in, in uh, game shows on television. 
uh-huh. and that is the kind of stuff they keep replaying cheers or not cheering and it's kind of right. silliness this is highly sophisticated all right see take your mom's word it's for not, it but anyway it's not I mean, surprising that the the sound you know is coming from video games in the sense that sports video games have been kind of dealing with this for a while how to create that right. convincing soundscape and it's it's funny you mentioned the randomizing and the need for multiple samples of similar sounds because uh if you're, anyone who's poured a lot of hours into a given sports game has probably experienced what it's like to, to hear the same mm-hmm. clip over and over again. Right. Uh, yeah. Even even games that try to have some variety, it reaches the point where you recognize a particular, you know, set, a, a particular recording right. of color commentary that comes up over and over mm-hmm. again, or some sort of frequently used uh, clip like that. Well, they have um, unlimited... So that's, that's not, not yeah. too surprising. They have unlimited but resources. But I really liked so. also the... Yeah. The difference of the times pointed out between um, a couple different approaches that I think they said in the, the English Premier League, they were including uh, negative cheering. Mm-hmm. Not not They had a line somewhere. They wouldn't uh, play clips of any kind of like offensive chance oh. uh, that the hooligans will, yes, well, will go with. But they do, uh, but they will play some like booing yeah. or, you know, if there's like a bad call, mm-hmm. right? Or what they think the, the crowd would perceive as a bad call. They'll play some booze. Whereas in the uh, Spanish league, they uh, they thought that was uh, a little, uh, you know, too much. Yeah. They, they decided not to do any negative cheering. So instead you get this soundscape in, in Spanish games of, of an inexplicably positive, supportive <laughs> crowd of fans. Yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of fun. Just the different uh, takes right. on well, how it's a to different recreate cultural the approach. All right, so let's let's go on. So there was something about John Banville, who I know is a, re- a writer that you read pretty regularly, Tamsin, who has a pseudonym, and you read the pretty pseudonym regularly. Also. Pretty regularly, am I wrong? Well, well, you're a little bit wrong, John okay. Banville. Yeah, I don't read that regularly. Okay, who do you read regularly? Okay, I've read some of his books. Yeah, but he is a little bit on the tough sledding mm. side of the board. Mm. Okay. Um, and, I read I read his book called The Infinities, which has links to mythology. Right. So you know I'm going to do that. All right. right. But then I tried The Untouchable, which is about spies yeah. and England, and, and it was it was complex and not a question. laugh a minute. Do you read? But do you read Benjamin Black I regularly? Delved into yeah, Benjamin Black. Benjamin Black. I should have said so yes. Benjamin Black's his you know. One of his pen names, his other, you know, his it's the same guy. It's, it's the, the same, same guy. guy. Okay. And uh, turns out he's killing off Benjamin. Bill. All right. So let, let, let's, right. Let, let, let's. So re- John level. Banville. Can I level set here? What? So John Banville, for those who have not been following, is a, a great writer who has a pseudonym, uh, Benjamin Black, who writes detective stories, effectively. Right. You're a huge fan of Benjamin Black, and right. now John Banville has decided to kill off Benjamin Black. He did it on a lark. He started it on a lark. He yeah. just wanted to write a simple story. Right. All right, and he did his 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 normal books, the mm. John Banville books, take years to write. Right. So on a lark, he whipped out this uh, detective novel with uh, this main character. His name is Quirk, mm-hmm. and uh, he is an alcoholic. He, he's a problematic guy, but he, he's interesting. And uh, it was a, a big hit. He makes a lot of money. He ends up writing seven of them. Right. But okay? he used. But ben- he never took it too seriously. Which is why he used Benjamin Black as a pseudonym. Right. But, and, then, and then, one day, yeah. he sat down and went back. And read a Benjamin Black and book. And read the Benjamin Black. And they said, boy, these aren't too bad. I could put my name on these. And that's what he's going to so do. So he killed Benjamin Black. <laughs> right. 
John Banville killed Benjamin Black. Right. And uh, he's now going to write only under the name, allegedly, John Banville. With a new main character. Yes. And I did know this character already because um, one of the Benjamin Black books was a um, story about uh, the young princesses Mm -hmm. uh, of England Mm -hmm. uh, during the war being farmed out to relatives in uh, Ireland for their own protection. And on the job was this guy, Sinjin Strafford, I think his name is, something like that. And, uh, well, he's an interesting character, and apparently he's going to reemerge in his own right. right. Well, he's yeah, he's already written the book. It's called Snow. It's been published in Spanish, but not English. Right, well, wait. So maybe you... Yeah, can read in Spanish, Spanish, Mr. Spanish. So, but you would recommend the Benjamin Black books, just for our listeners. Yes? Yes. I, oh. oh, I would. If, if you like that kind of thing. I mean, you know, they are detective murder mystery yeah. things, you okay. know. And, uh, you know, I think that I think that can be fun. Right. But also, you know, he's really wonderful at evoking Ireland. Mm-hmm. All right. So I do I do enjoy that. He, he actually wrote a memoir uh, recently. Um, that I think takes place largely in Dublin. So we've been to Dublin. Mm-hmm. We could read that. Okay. All right. All right. So the next article, uh, there were a bunch of articles, both in the Times and the Journal this week, about Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, why? Because... Uh, Wait a minute. Ella Fitzgerald? Ella Fitzgerald. Now, are you me, referring uh, to... Don't, 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 don't say it. Zeke. First of all, Zeke, are you familiar with Ella Fitzgerald? I am. And, wha- and how was Ella Fitzgerald referred to in our household? Leah Fitzgerald. Exactly. Would you like to explain why to the listeners? Uh, I think it's just that uh, Sadie got it wrong when she was little. <laughs> exactly right. Sadie came home one day and said, oh, that's Leah Fitzgerald. We said, oh boy. Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Well, well it's, it's, it's a little... I thought it was Fitzgerald. Yeah. I it's, think it's Fitzgerald. It's, it is similar when Sadie was studying Roman numerals and came home to report that she had learned a lot about German minerals. So she's, you know, she, she could make that kind of mistake. So in any event, Ella Fitzgerald, Ella Fitzgerald now I'm not going to get it wrong. Um, See, it's not so, not so hard. No. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a live tape of her called Ella in Berlin, which I've played a number of times and Tamsin's had the pleasure of listening to. Um, and they've now come up with a successor to that concert called. Well, it was another live concert, right? In two Germany. years later in Berlin, they found uh, the, the tapes lost Berlin and, tapes, and they were in great shape. Yes, and mm-hmm. so that's the occasion for all these articles. But why Fitzgerald. do we care? Why do we care? Well, we care because it, it sparks a little bit of a discussion about what's the essential Ella Fitzgerald being oh, perhaps the greatest that. jazz singer. Right. Uh, in the last hundred years. The article says yeah. she was amazing live. Mm-hmm. She really responded to the audience, right. not unlike NBA players. Okay. <laughs> right. And uh, she, you know, she would adapt right. how she was singing, even what she was singing, right. according to her sort of chemistry with the crowd. Well, the interesting thing is, though, at the same time. So hearing her live performances is worth it. Yes. At the same time, though. She was possibly the greatest in-studio artist, and she's very famous. Let's just say she was the greatest. Uh, who are you putting up against her, Tipson? Uh, nobody. Yeah, she's I the greatest. I love Ella. I she's, love Ella. Yeah, all right. So, and when I mean in-studio, uh, there are the great uh, compilations. Ella sings, uh, the, you know, George and Ira Gershwin. Ella sings Arlen. Ella sings Rogers and Hart. Ella sings Jerome Kern, et cetera, et cetera. Ella sings Cole Porter. Um 
And, you know, you're right. In the sense, it's not an important debate whether Ella's recordings singing Cole Porter in the studio or her live recordings in Berlin are better. I mean, they're both, both worth listening to. They're just different. What this uh, caused me to think, though, was uh, it reminded me that we recently had an event that you may not be on to, Zeke. We found in one of the uh, outbuildings in this house in Pennsylvania a collection of records and a couple of books, uh, and vinyl, Zeke, vinyl. And uh, this has caused us, uh, your brother Granger in particular, to pull out a record player to receive as a wedding gift. And we've been playing this old vinyl, uh, I will say to mixed results, although uh, I don't think Granger's on to that yet. But in any event, uh, it is kind of fun to play some of these old records. But I'm going to talk about the book he came up with. When I first looked, Tamsin no, got it. No, I came up with it. Tamsin got it. It was, it was, this was all trash left behind right. by previous yeah. owners of the house. Yes. Okay. And we were cleaning out some shed. Yeah. And there were big boxes of LPs yeah. and big boxes of books. And there's a book called The Penguin Guide. Penguin's the publisher. The Penguin Guide to Jazz on CD, LP, and cassette. And it's a thousand pages long. And it is a compendium of reviews of almost every single jazz album ever recorded up until 1992 when this uh, paperback was written. But it's an enormous resource. I mean, just to give you an idea, and it's wonderfully written. It's by so these two. why is this better than just going on the internet? Uh, because, no, this is just much better. And, and the description, look, I don't know if this is in any way appears on the internet, but the way they write about things, let me give you an example. All right, they're talking about Ella Sings the Duke Ellington songbook, right? Uh, and I can't read you all this because we don't have the time, but uh, it says some of the tracks feature Ella with a small group, and there is an I Got It Bad and, ain't the, and That Ain't Good, which finds Ben Webster almost oozing out of the speakers. Highly recommended. I mean, it's wonderfully written, and it's amazing that they have a few lines about every single record going. Uh, and here's why, in particular, I think it's current. I first looked askance at it. I knew such books existed, but I never had an interest in them. And here's why they're great now. And the answer is Spotify. Because before, you know, you would buy a book like this, I suppose, if you were a record collector, and, you know, how many records are you actually going to buy? And, and which means that the utility of the book is kind of limited. But if you own, in a sense, every single recording just by pressing a button on Spotify, it's a tremendous resource. You know, you're trying like what to... what to listen to. You're trying to learn about Bill Evans, his great jazz pianist. Which is his greatest CD? What do you want to hear? Uh, Stan Getz, same thing. You don't know. There's so much to choose from. And this tells you. So, so I you recommend would recommend it. The yes. Penguin Guide to Jazz. Right. By Richard Cook and Brian, Brian Morton. Morton. Although the truth of the matter is, any similar book would be a great gift idea. And I think this has not been thought of as a gift because it's old-fashioned and who needs it, except now with Spotify, you do need it. So I think it's a tremendous thing. I've, I'm getting a lot of fun out of this. I think it's great. Okay. One man's trash. One man's trash, another man's trash. Exactly. All right. So here's an article, Daniel, that you're going to love. Yeah, it's about law. About law, okay? It looks like it's about architecture. Yeah. Because it's about, it's another one of the tours with, uh, what's his name, uh, Kimmelman, Michael Kimmelman. Right. Uh, around uh, New York City, you know, virtual tour. Right. All right. And uh, this time they're doing 42nd Street 
and he's doing it with Gerald S. Caden, who teaches law and urban planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Among other things, Caden clerked for Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. Right. Okay. So in any case, um, they start the tour, the virtual tour, and it turns out the whole story of the neighborhood is eminent domain. Really? So what's, kidding. what do they mean by eminent domain? Eminent domain is when you condemn a building and you get to knock it down and put something else there. Right. And you just say, um, sorry, guys, to who's ever living there right. or owning it. We need uh, it. The public good right. has, you know, uh, better um, uses for it. Mm -hmm. And the public good is superior. So they uh, end up, you know, they uh, knock down a lot of, uh, you know, well, 42nd Street, you know, used to be so charming, right, mm -hmm. with all the... Uh, Debbie Does Dallas yeah, movie theaters, right, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, adult movie theaters, right. shall we say, the prostitution. It was kind of a scary, awful charming. part of town. You're kidding about okay? charming, right? But people, you know, now look back with this nostalgic, well, it was well, wild. Well, it was natural. It was, you know, well, here, here's not gentrified. Here's what's interesting from a legal perspective on eminent domain. It's easy to make the case to get rid of something like a pornographic movie theater, which is like tearing down a... a, a a building that's that's about to fall down on its own. It's just mm -hmm. in, you know it's in terrible shape. What became more interesting was, uh, and there was a big case in Connecticut, I believe, in which they wanted to tear something down that was legitimate, and they just said, yeah, but we we have a better use for the space, even though that there's nothing wrong with that building and there's nothing right. wrong with what's going on there. And that went to the Supreme Court, I believe, and they were, it ultimately was determined you can do that. Right. But yes, it's well, easy if, to tear yeah, down the, the, the dirty public, movie If theaters. the public good is yeah. good enough, but right. it's still you know. On that edge, you yeah. know, just so, you know, somebody else is going to make more money out of this. So you're just going to, you know. Uh, well, you got to also give fair compensation when you tear it down. Okay. So. Um, so then they move on to um, eventually to Grand Central Station. Right. And they, they okay. love it, right? Grand Central Station was tricky. All right. I mean, it, it just, first of all, you know that Penn Station was torn down. Yes. Okay. And there's a great quote here. Uh, Kimmelman, here, this is Kimmelman talking. We're at Grand Central Terminal. Yeah. Which is a walk in itself. When I try to describe the civic and cultural value of architecture, I sometimes contrast entering Grand Central, mm -hmm. the city's great gateway, right. with the experience of arriving at the rat hole that is Penn Station. Yes, okay, my station um, for uh, anyway, forty years. Right. They tore down Penn Station. Right. All right, which was magnificent. Right. Which was an amazing yeah. portal. You know. Um, you know. Beaux Arts. We would call it masterpiece, right. right? With columns and statuary, and uh, the, I mean, it, it, the statuary actually—it's not like they took it apart and reused or recycled. It gets dumped in like the swamps that are now the Meadowlands, mm -hmm. and some of it's rediscovered in the process of building the Meadowlands. Um, so it's a, a horrible, horrible event. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes time to you know, so that galvanizes uh, people into protecting, uh, you know, creating and acting what turns out to be a nationally transformative landmarks law, okay, under which a commission was established to designate landmarks and historic 
district. So, so here's what I always heard. If your building yeah. was designated a landmark, in addition to receiving that honor, yeah. you could no longer alter right. the building. That's a problem. Okay? Right. That has pluses and minuses. A lot of minuses. But, okay, but, but, because but, a lot of these buildings, because they can't be altered, can't be commercially right. viable right. in the modern Which world. Which is why they say the Spain yeah. bookstore went bankrupt uh, a few months ago. But um, what I recall about, you're going to tell me, you can tell me I'm wrong. What I recall about Grand Central was that it was saved because Jackie Kennedy could see the Grand Central terminal, terminal from her Personally. house, from her apartment. And she made a big fuss. Am I wrong about well, that? Well, I think it was more than just Jackie Kennedy. It helped. To be honest. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it certainly helped. Anyway, that, you know, um, that results in a um, going, that goes to the Supreme Court as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. Penn Central bought, brought a lawsuit claiming that under just compensation clause in the United States Comp Constitution, mm. property had been taken away from the company because Penn Central was being prevented from earning the $3 million right. a year mm -hmm. that the developer had promised to pay. The developer wanted to build on top. Sure, like Penn okay. Station. Um, so uh, anyway. Uh, Justice Sounds like they yeah, lost. Yeah, they lost. Right. Okay. Um, uh, Justice Brennan authored the opinion saying that the Landmarks Law served a worthy public purpose. Okay. okay. Um, even though it, he, it re the law reduced the value of Penn Central's property, it still left the company with a reasonable return for the existing yes. terminal That's cool. use. You know what the phrase for that is? What? Other people's money. So, uh, yeah. So uh, everybody loves Grand Central. Everybody hates Penn Station. No question about it. No question about it. Uh, but it's it, not even very functional. I mean, it's not like we've got we a good thing in return. Penn, uh, Penn Station. Hmm. It's the trains that aren't functional. The station seems to oh, work. Oh, please. Uh, Zeke. Video game, mm -hmm. Zeke. Video games. Yes, you sent us a, a text about Leave behind the dreary underworld of Penn Station in New York <laughs> and journey with me to a uh, more delightful underworld in the world of Greek mythology. Yes. Um, so sometimes in this podcast, touch on Greek mythology, you know, sometimes it comes up in art history matters, but uh, rarely does it actually coincide with video games, but today it does. Uh, there's this game I've been playing recently called Hades, and... May uh, I just interject yeah. that Dad actually knows a fair amount about Hades now, yeah, since we've been listening to... Uh, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry's mythos in the car. Yes. Hey, do you remember oh, who Hades uh, is married to? Do I? Yeah. Oh, of course. No, uh, I'm going to say Persephone. You're right. Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, a high point. Thank you very much. Okay. Anyway, wow. but tell us about those kinds of questions. Is that really <laughs> true? There's not that much mythology in uh, video games? I would be. That's no, there is. There is. Um, it's. Uh, it's always coming up in some way or another because the like uh, bombastic, like scale, spectacular style of, of myths lends itself to video games. You know, the uh, a medium where so many games are very like visual and based on like uh, motion and, and trying to impress and, and surprise you. Uh, the idea of having larger than life gods and goddesses is kind of a helpful one. Right. But Taking it's not revenge the case. and uh, yeah. yeah. Intense battling with each other, so on. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's not always the case that um, creators of a game really delve into a particular pantheon and uh, try to try to you know kind of master what it was about, right? Um, 
And that's, I, I would suggest that's, that is the case that's going on with this game, Hades. Uh, I shared with you uh, an article where um, uh, basically a, a games journalist um, was just happened to notice that in this game that's about Greek mythology, that all the characters were very attractive. And this struck her as a very odd thing. She's like, why is everyone in this game so good looking? It really stands out as like a, an odd thing about this game's style. Wasn't the article and... subtitled Horny for Hades? Oh my goodness. Well, sure. Damn it. Damn it. One thing I need to point out is this is this game is a hit, right, Zeke? It is it's not hit, like yes. this is some weird, obscure yes, but, but, mythology game. This game is a yes, hit. Yes, but let me point out something else. Yeah. What the writer also said, it's not just that the people are attractive, but their personalities and their empathetic reactions to things are attractive. Is that correct, Zeke? The, you're saying they're just attracted to the aesthetic of it? No, the, the aesthetic, but they're also good people to some degree. They're, they're not sympathetic. good people. They're I, complex I, people. I thought the writer, the writer said they were good people. Yeah, no? They're engaged. Okay, okay. well, well, but to well, that we'll extent, so, they're not... They're not accurate. Okay. Yeah. So she, so she's, you know, like curious about why uh, everyone's so sexy in this game. All these, especially, you know, it has uh, presumably an ancient setting, right? If it's supposed to be like uh, ancient Greece, so what makes it so sexy? She asks the uh, someone who who worked on the game, talks to some of the creators of it, and they describe how um, in their kind of uh, like art direction process. Uh, they're, I guess they're, I guess the art director for the project or the lead artist on the game uh, was just like really passionate about Greek mythology. It was really invested in these characters and also in the, the aesthetics that go with that, with the ancient Greek tradition. So just as in ancient Greece, you had all these nude statues where, you know, muscles and uh, curves of the human body were, you know, lovingly created detail by detail as a way of serving the glory of the gods you know they wanted in this game to carry on that tradition by having these these gods who were who were made all the more vivid for being uh you know like these intense uh, versions of humanity you know having a, a very beautiful goddess of love in aphrodite or a very like uh handsome and jovial dionysus that sort of thing uh, and it really does make the game like much more i don't know like uh, likable in a way uh, not likable, like as as you were picking up on that, it is the characters in the game are likable, but not as good people. And this is, I think, a key. This is one way that I think the game really gets the like uh, flavor of what it is to to enjoy Greek mythology. Right, you're not saying these are nice people that I want to be roommates with. You're saying these people are compelling. They're so interesting. You know, they're so vivid in their needs and wants, and and uh, they're it's so interesting to get involved in their little petty dramas between the gods and i've just been I, I brought up this article because i've been enjoying the game tremendously in part because of how it's all about bickering uh between the gods it's uh, all these characters they're they're you know ostensibly uh the the main characters ostensibly being helped by the gods of olympus but he suspects they have kind of their own motives it's they're perhaps just doing it because they have a, an old feud with his father, Hades, but he has a feud with Hades as well. And so much of the action of the game is about escaping uh, the underworld, which is a, a classic and recurring uh, you know, well, they, subject matter they used to for all, Greek mythology. They used to always say that the Greeks would explain the actions of men with the stories of the gods. Okay, so they're really talking about how we behave anyway. Okay, well, using yeah, these sure. fantastical so, stories. 
But uh, how do you pronounce that guy, the main character's name? Or the one she uh, was... Zagreus? Zagreus. Okay, so he's possibly a son of Hades, right? Yeah, apparently he's, he's kind of an obscure character in mythology. I think that makes it makes it useful for the game to add a little bit of its own uh, narrative. Right. So uh, the research that exists on this, at least from what I read, uh, he's possibly the son of Hades in, in traditional mythology. Uh, maybe has like some adventures, but it's, it's kind of been sidelined. Other kind of uh, characters in um, in the underworld get more focus. So for this game, it was it was a jumping off point to say okay, this is Agraeus, we can kind of make up who he is and what he's about and really play up this uh, antagonistic relationship he has with his father, Hades. Yes. Um, and by by having the other gods of Olympus take Agraeus' side in this, you get to bring in those better-known characters and all their fun kind of uh, flaws and, and stylistic touches um, hmm. of their own. Well, see, I'm so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned Dionysus because it, they also say that... Uh, you know, at a certain point, maybe Zagreus kind of morphs into Dionysus, uh, well, uh, you know, in terms going, of the stories. So you're right. They share a, some real characteristics. Let me, just, let me just cap this by saying, look, Zeke recommends Hades. I don't doubt it. Um, but I do think it's worth repeating what Tam said at the outset. Those of us who don't get into video games, Mythos by Stephen Fry. We were listening to the audio recording, but just reading it. It's it's pretty amazing, and it has, has a little bit of the flavor of what you've been describing with respect to the video games. So I'd recommend that uh, too. So uh, Greek mythology is still good, still good, still got it after it all these good. years. Yes, even though it's what Western centric, <laughs> it is Western. Yeah, uh, it is, it, all right, unavoidably, inescapably Western. Yes. But it's, uh, it's good sports stuff. quickly. The Preakness yesterday, it's too far to follow when these races take place. I was shocked that they were running the Preakness yesterday. Normally it's in the the spring, uh, but in any event, uh, great race though. Uh, the run for the brown-eyed Susans. The run for the, yeah, sure you would know. You're from Maryland. Swiss Skydiver won a female horse, as they are known. A filly beat Authentic, uh, and Swiss Skydiver was a long shot, twelve to one. Authentic was the favorite by making an inside move and winning by a nose, as we say in the biz. Yes. Nico uh, ran into the kitchen and said, a lady horse won. Yeah, a filly, yes. But, or lady horse, yes. Uh, I don't want to put too much cold water on this. People say, how can a, a filly beat a colt? Uh, aren't the colt stronger? And part of the answer is that they have a weight allowance. So the the colts all carry 126 pounds. Uh, the fillies in the race carry 121 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, race that close makes a little difference. But in any event, a great race by Swiss Skydiver. And uh, Bob Gibson passed away, the great pitcher from the Cardinals. Everyone has been probably reading about that. One of the all-time greats had the reputation for being a mean guy, a real rough guy, who would, uh, and you could see how intense he was. He would stare into the batter uh, and look like he had a larceny in his heart. Uh, it turns out that uh, he didn't have larceny in his heart. He was nearsighted. So uh, he was staring in because he couldn't make out the catcher's signs. <laughs> but it helped his reputation. It, you want the batters to be afraid of you when you pitch. He actually didn't hit near as many batters as he's reputed to. And he, Tim McCarver was telling some story yesterday. You remember Tim. We used to watch him in the Met games. He was uh, Bob Gibson's catcher. Uh, and the story, well, they had an interview with him and Gibson some years ago. And Gibson actually described the situation where a teammate of his name, Bill White, had been traded from the Giants to the Cardinals. Uh, so then when they went to San Francisco, Bill said to Gibson, 
uh, hey, how'd you like to meet Willie Mays? Let's go visit him because I know him. And Gibson was very excited. Willie Mays had been his idol, and they show up at uh, Willie Mays' uh, house in San Francisco. Uh, they knock on the door. Willie Mays says, uh, Bill, how you doing? And who's that guy behind you? And uh, Bill White says, that's Gibson. And Willie Mays says, Gibson, you wear glasses? You're going to kill somebody. So uh, there you go. Uh, people were concerned about Bob Gibson. He was a scary guy. And the idea that he was nearsighted and pitched without his glasses was worrisome. In any event, a great pitcher. So you had something about uh, Edward Hopper. Right. Right. right? That's my transition. Okay. That's my segue. Yeah. Well, what makes this fun? I mean, uh, you know Edward Hopper, right? Yes. Nighthawks. Nighthawks, yeah, the diner. Yeah, well, we know that because of the great album cover right. of uh, Tom Waits. Oh, was that a Tom Waits cover? Yeah. Uh, you didn't know that? Well, I'm into art, so I would know that before I would know <laughs> and, a music cover. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of other... Nighthawks at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the um, you know various uh, motel mm-hmm. kind of uh, interiors and exteriors, and there's a famous one, uh, Office at Night, mm-hmm. that I used to teach in class. Um, but it's it's kind of how would you describe his paintings? Uh, well, I don't know, kind of moody, moody, a little bit dark, yes, realistic. Uh, more moody than realistic, right? But not 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 you know not 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 super abstract. No, 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 not, not at all. Nothing, not at all. You know, not like what was going on in the rest of yeah, the world. Yeah, sort of a mysterious right? cast yeah. on everyday surroundings. And the turn of the twentieth century. But anyway, um, a uh, grad student working on his thesis. Uh, or maybe just, uh, you know, hanging out yeah. during, um, you know, uh, the pandemic uh, in London, Googling around, uh, actually made an interesting discovery that some of his very early paintings, some of Hopper's very early paintings, which were revered as showing his precocious talent. Mm-hmm. Okay, and individuality, and his, you know, and and you know his hometown neighborhood, actually, uh, were copied from other paintings. Well, that's embarrassing. Um, and uh, possibly from even you know, it's kind of magazine article oh, paintings. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that's kind of interesting because it gives us a whole different picture of Hopper. It's one thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with copying. Okay, when you're starting out painting, you know, everybody does it. All right, that's that's one of the ways Picasso taught himself to be a great painter. Mm-hmm. He did many, many. He he studied the masters over and over again and would do his own versions. Uh, Van Gogh as well. I mean, this is not unusual to start out uh, by copying yeah, the but masters. You're here, Hopper's but paintings became people famous. thought these yeah. were original. Yeah, that's a problem. Okay, yeah. and they're not. And it, it you know, it kind of, uh, and, and he promoted himself as you know, pretty much coming, you know full born, yeah. uh, you know, out of the head of Zeus fully kind formed, of thing, yeah. fully formed, right. okay, um, as an, you know, individual uh, Americanist, uh, but, so this, this is kind of fun, again, it's that, uh, um, the delight in uh, kind of archival uh, research, in this case, Google research, um, and it's uh, really, well, the, it sounds uh, like it's, it's valuable. Yeah, it's very valuable. You know, lots of times you uh, write your thesis and 
you're working on stuff that's very interesting to you but has no impact on the rest of the art world. Right. This guy might have an impact. Kind of yeah. cool. That is interesting. Okay, so finally, we're going to talk about beer. Uh, we held off as long as we can. Uh, Schaefer yeah. beer. Yeah, one day, yeah. we were walking across the Stockton Bridge with our bikes. Yeah. Because you're not allowed to ride on the bridge. You have and, to walk your bike. And, and for some reason... My mind was stuck on the Schaefer beer mm. jingle. Yes, we're not going to... Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're happy more right. than and, and one. I was And I was able to give you the rest of the song. I'll spare the listeners my But then you it. also told me the story of the commercial, the, the greatest, TV commercial. This is the greatest commercial, and we're going to let you listen to it, in the history of television. You're getting that? See, greatest commercial in the history of television. Not to be wow. confused with Schaefer being the greatest beer in the history of beer. It's not. But the reason that Schaefer has come to the news is because it was a brand. They're bringing it back. They're bringing it back. It was a brand that was popular and was sponsored the Dodgers and the Mets years ago. Yeah. And, and now Pabst, which owns the beer. And I know, Zeke, you're a big Pabst guy. PBR. Yeah, PBR, right. You're a hipster that you are. I think in Brooklyn, people might. You're shaking your head, but we know the truth. Uh, come on. That's several stereotypes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in any event, Pabst uh, is now going to start brewing uh, Schaefer in uh, Utica, not in Brooklyn. Well, anymore. the Schaefer had been sold several times to yeah. various companies, and now, at the moment, Pabst owns it. But it's going to f- f- uh, fulfill your expectations with respect to Schaefer because it's going to be, as they say, a deep gold lager, 3.8% So you alcohol. can you can have more than one. That was the whole point of Schaefer. It's not that alcoholic. It's called ballpark beer. Uh, I think my father's beer was generally hams. Hams was probably like that. And uh, that was a pretty cheap beer, I think. H-A-M-M. Well, that's another thing, yeah. But I definitely remember Schaefer. Yeah, I think hams are the Midwest. Anyway. Um, Daniel. What? I grew up in Maryland. There I, was plenty of hams beer Your father was there. drinking imported beer from the Midwest. My point, we're going to play this ad, and here's the great thing about this ad. Two things. First of all, when I we had this conversation on the Stockton Bridge, I was able to recall... Word for word, that commercial, which I had heard 50 years ago, 50 years ago, and I could play every part, and I was able to describe the climax, and it's the cl- and there's great singing in it, and I said there's this this uh, this sort of uh, young ethereal type guy is forced to sing the Schaefer song, and he stands on a a little box and he sings beautifully, and that's the gimmick in the end. But what I didn't know, what Miss Granger was able to discover is. That was not an anonymous singer. The singer who you're about to hear is Larry Kurt. Larry Kurt was the original Tony in West Side Story on Broadway, and also the close to original main character, Bobby, in Company. So do you think he got more money for playing Tony on Broadway or more money in 1972 for playing the rookie in uh, oh, I think that's this easy. commercial. Uh, in the commercial. And he, he, just so we have things straight, I mean, he had been, uh, some, Tony was first, and, and this was later on. But uh, Much later. I'd, I'd like to think he made a fortune there. Uh, it, it's, anyway, we are just going to leave you by playing this ad, and I don't want to give it away, uh, uh, but it's just a fantastic advertisement. You'll get it. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah, you can also get it on YouTube. 
Well, we're, we're, we're clipping it from YouTube. Yeah, but you could see you could you see, see the video it yes. on YouTube. All right, so uh, all right, so Zeke, that's it. Thanks so, for being uh, with us. Zeke. Zeke has got to get back to Baby Pepper. Yeah, I heard some uh, some uh, little whimpers in the back. I don't know who that was. Who do you think? I don't know. Maybe it was Noel. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it was Noel. Right. Uh, but it's a pleasure having you here, and we can't wait till uh, uh, Pepper is able to join us on this podcast. Uh, but until next week, this is Dan Abuhoff and Tamson Granger and Zeke Abuhoff with Tamson and Dan reading the paper. See you next week. Bye bye. Bye. Hey guys, seen that new driver yet? Yeah, let's give him the business. Right. Make him sing the Schaefer jingle. Hey, here he is now. Okay, you, up on the barrel. Okay, rookie, come on. Every new man's got to sing the Schaefer jingle. But sing. Come on, sing. You better sing, boy. Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than once. Sing. The most rewarding flavor in this man's world for people who are having fun. Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. Was that all right? Not bad, kid.